0: Are you tired of doing ministry on your own or trying to figure out everything by yourself? Then we encourage you to go to Marathon Youth Ministries membership site, MYMU. When you enroll in MYMU, we surround and invest in you uh, in many different ways. First, uh, by plugging you into a cohort which is filled with like-minded leaders, and each cohort is led by an experienced parish leader who uh, will ask the right questions, introduce you to new strategies and and ways of thinking to help you build that ministry outside the box and and overcome some of the obstacles that we face. In addition to the cohort, you have access to a growing list of online courses, uh, resources, and other great content. And you're connected to an exclusive community with other youth workers where you could just get to ask those questions that maybe you're afraid to share in, in other areas or forums. So to sign up, for uh, MYMU uh, membership, uh, just go to marathonyouthministry.com/backslash-MYMU or marathonyouthministry.com and click on membership. And for $35 a month or $385 a year, uh, you will be surrounded with lots of love, encouragement, investment, so that you can grow a healthy ministry that will lead to dynamic, authentic missionary disciples. Check it out. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's me, Chris, and we've got another show. Are you excited? I know I'm excited, and I'm especially excited because we've got a big guest. Uh, they're all big, they're all special, but I'm really excited about this person because I've been working on getting this person on the, on the show for a while, and it finally happened. It happened actually just as we were getting into quarantine life, and that guest is Christina Lamas, the Executive Director of the National Federation of Catholic Youth Ministry, And if you're like, what's the National Federation for Catholic Youth Ministry? Well, basically it's an organization that seeks to empower young people to be missionary disciples. And so they equip pastoral leaders, youth ministers, parents, and and so many other people in uh, accompanying uh, young people to get to know Christ and to give their life to Christ. And so Christina and I, we talk a little bit about her journey from youth ministry all the way up to executive director. We talk about leadership and just what makes her tick and work and so effective in such a big role. So bust out those pens, those notebooks, and let's get ready for another episode of the YM Transfer Podcast. All right, welcome to the show, Christina. How are you doing?
1: I'm I'm managing. That's my my response lately. I am managing.
0: Managing. That's that's your new word. That's, uh, uh, that, that's a loaded word, right? I mean, especially with what's going on today, correct? It
1: is. I, I actually, I take that word from an experience that I had with Call to Witness a few years ago when I traveled with CRS to Nigeria. And um, in meeting the, the local um, ordinary there, the bishop, we asked him, how are you doing? And he looked at me and he said, I'm managing. And so when I put that into perspective of what life is like in Nigeria and what they have to manage on a daily basis. When people ask me, how are you doing lately I'm I'm managing Um, Things could be in different a different world could be they could spin in a different direction. And at the moment I'm managing day by day, sometimes moment by moment.
0: So what were you before managing? Um, and I imagine that uh, quarantining and everything going on in the world with COVID and whatnot is what puts you in managing mode. But before that, uh, how would you have answered that question?
1: To an extent, I think I've always, I've always, i probably for the most part have either answered it. I'm I'm managing, but the degree in which I'm managing has shifted during this pandemic. Um, but the word that I would continue to use, even prior to COVID or even currently is, how are you doing? I'm managing. And then I would also follow up with, I'm blessed. And so I would say to you prior to, I'm, I'm blessed and managing. And I still think I'm blessed. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for what I have and what God has been able to provide. And at this moment, I'm I'm healthy. My family is healthy. And so therefore I'm grateful that can turn in an hour, that can turn the next day. And so you you manage and I give thanks for what I have at this moment. It's-
0: you know and, and i can appreciate that and, and uh people who know you or people who don't know you or, or or whatnot one of the things that i've i've learned is one every time i have a conversation with you i really value that conversation because and i don't mean this as an insult by any means you are hard to have a conversation with because you are managing a lot um you know as uh, I, I guess your are title is executive director right of the national federation yeah. of uh, catholic youth ministry um, can you just share with people, what are the m- many different things that you are managing on a day-to-day basis?
1: I'm smiling as you're, as you're mentioning that, because today I think there have been maybe maybe 10 different balls up in the air that I've, um, I've been strategically trying to have them land in a certain location. <laughs> that can be challenging at times. Um, but in terms of my position and what I see myself managing, I mean, my primary responsibility is to manage staff. And so there is, a, is there is a um, we do have an employees within the organization, and so I am their direct supervisor. so it's the management of staff on that end, but within that there are so many different layers. I also serve with the board of directors and so I am the liaison to the, to the board of directors for the organization so there's a level of management there. Um, there's also a level of interaction with membership with people and so managing people's expectations, managing people's desires, wishes, dreams, and goals, and what can be done and what cannot be done. There's a a level of management there as well. And then there's management when it comes to finances. Um, There's management when it comes to legal issues. There's management when it comes to HR. So I think you get the idea of (laughs) of the multiple balls that might be up in the air at one given time.
0: Yeah. So uh, when you're at the top or when you're in that leadership position, it's not necessarily getting easier. It's just different things to manage. And I love what you said at the beginning where I asked uh, what you would have said before. And you said it, it's, it, it would have been managing, but the management has shifted. Right. Oh,
1: yeah. And I think
0: that's kind of like the important thing is as we grow and as we move in life, it, it, you're not done managing. There's never this cruise control sort of uh part of life that we get into unless there is. And if so, I, I hope someone tells me like how to get there, but like, <laughs> it's constantly managing these different plates, but you know, that's kind of reassuring. I, uh, well, I don't know if it's reassuring, right. Cause as executive director of the national Federation for Catholic youth ministry, it's kind of an example of what a lot of youth ministers are, right. They're managing so many different plates and so many different things. Um, know when it comes to multitasking and managing these different areas like how would you scale yourself on on that do you feel like you're effective with managing a lot or um i I mean i guess you'd have to be to be in this role but like where is your comfort level or do you feel like when things are too simple it's a little too eerie Mm -hmm.
1: i think the way that i would answer that question chris it really depends on how well i know myself and -hmm. from that degree then i can manage outside expectations um so i always do kind of a temperature check with myself to see where i'm at and how i'm responding if that's directly related to what's being asked of me or is it directly related to maybe an emotion or feeling that i might be feeling as i am trying to manage whatever the situation would be so in terms of effectiveness i'm more effective when i know myself and where i'm at and where maybe some Some tension might be arising or some fear might be coming forth of where the the source of where that's coming from. And I can kind of gauge it for myself first. Then I can be effective to responding to others. But if my emotions are all over the place and at the same time I'm trying to manage something that's in front of me, I'm not going to be as effective. Whereas if I know where the emotions are coming from, I can name it and I can put it aside for a second. Then I can attend to what's in front of me.
0: So that that's awesome. Where, where did that come, come from? Like, uh, that idea of self-awareness or, or, mani- or understanding your emotion and, and where you're, um, where you're currently stated at that point.
1: You know, I, prior to being on the t- having this role, I I'd say on a scale from one to 10, I was pretty, I would say maybe at a seven, six or seven in terms of a scale of, um, having that self-awareness of myself in this position over the four the last four years primarily probably within the first two years the self-awareness of myself and in how that comes to play with the role it has grown in ways where i can pretty much stop throughout the day and begin to pinpoint for myself um where things are arising and how and why they might be arising within myself if not i'm at least comfortable enough to invite others to do a temperature check with me so it's not just me but i'm I'm comfortable because I'm comfortable with where I'm at. So even this morning, I was on a conversation with a staff member and I was expressing how I was feeling. And I said, I need to pause. I need you to take your hat off as an employee and put on your hat as an X X number, of a a personality that I I gave this person. And I said, as I'm speaking to you, I'm doing this temperature check for myself. I need you to help me process whether this is coming from a place of urgency or is this coming from a place of, no, Christina, you're absolutely right. Keep moving forward. And so I can do that because I'm comfortable with knowing where I'm at and I have no fear and I welcome people's feedback. And so together we did a temperature check and getting a better sense of where I'm at helps me then make more effective decisions. I wasn't like that four years ago. Being in this role in this position, I've grown in, in, in that capacity and feeling more comfortable in inviting others to kind of walk with me and, and do those temperature checks with me.
0: Can, would you be uh, willing to share with us maybe some moments that helped that transition take place from four years ago to where you are now to become more self-aware?
1: You know, it was, it, it's funny, it's one of these moments where they're aha moments and mm-hmm. it's, to be a weird moment that I'm going to explain to you, but it, I can recall um, where I was and how I came to be. My first, two, my first two years in the organization were very challenging for multiple reasons. Um, but there was a lot of self-awareness that um, I was, I was discerning a lot for myself and where God had called me to, and where He was leading me in the organization, and how open I needed to be to His Spirit and to be able to move effectively um, as a leader, but also within the organization. So there was a lot of conversation, and we still do. God and I have lots of good moments, uh, but I remember this one particular conversation. <clears throat> he and I were having it and just trying to make sense of the situation to the best of my ability, but also at some point say, okay, I'm done. I've done what I can, the rest is in your hands. And so I was pulling out of the driveway of the building that we leased for the organization in Washington, DC. And I had to swipe my key card. And as I was swiping the key card, Before I hit the gas pedal, something just dawned on me, and I realized in the terms of how I process information, um, prior to, I would say, and maybe colleagues that have worked with me would say, oh, Christina, you you need an answer, and would snap their finger. You want to move right away. With process, mm, you're not really much of a process person. And I would probably have agreed with them in terms of my reaction and how I I move forward and, and how I think. Over the last four years, I have grown to value processing and what that means and how that means in bar- and how it shapes out in very different situations. And so in that moment, I realized that a lot of what I had been doing over the, maybe over a course of a year, was learning to reprocess my brain <laughs> and how um, how to process information differently and how to react from a different mode. Um, and it really hadn't dawned on me until that one moment. But again, it had been a series of conversations that I've been having with others and. In my own spirituality, my own conversations with God, and at that moment, I'm telling you, weird as it may be, I was swiping to get out of the parking lot, and I just paused, and it it clicked. That's
0: awesome. Yeah, you know, hey, sometimes it's in those profound aha moments, and then sometimes it's just gradually over time. And we have all these different influencers that 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 occur in our life. Um, you know, tell tell us a little bit more about this position of executive director and maybe not so much this position but how this position came to be right so you have been in youth ministry for how long now
1: oh my goodness since i if you count the years of volunteer i mean since i was 14 years old
0: see i i I love the fact that you count the years that you volunteered because there are so many people and i'm guilty of this right where i was like no i started you know right after my volunteer year and so I count that, but I discredit my campus ministry years and my oh, years in high school and, and everything like that. <laughs> so since you were 14, right? Yep. Let, let, tell us, a little, let's go back to your youth ministry days as a 14 year old, uh, Christina. And, um, and, and what, what drew you into ministry? What drew you into getting involved beyond just going to mass and uh, checking the list?
1: I'm laughing because what drew me um, was my mom. So at 14 years old, there's eight of us in our family. I have a sister who's one year younger than I. So we grew up pretty much at the same same time, same pace. And so at 14, my sister being 13, my mom says, come with me. Um, We're like, where are we going? She's like, don't ask questions, just come with me. And so as obedient as we were, we, we followed my mom's directions. And so we got in the car. And so now we're heading in the car somewhere. We don't know where we're going. We live acro- we, we lived across, well, when I was growing up, we lived across the church, the street from the church. And so we would walk usually to church and we went to school there. So we'd walk to school. So we get out of our, our we leave our house and she turns the corner and she goes into the parking lot of the, of the church. And my sister and I are just looking at her like, what are we doing here? And she gets out of the car and says, follow me. And so we followed her and she opened up the door to the religious office. And she turned to the person that was in there and said, here are my daughters. I'll see you later. And she left. And so she drove us to the church and left us there. And I'm so grateful she did that because we were introduced to a whole new world that was outside of our sphere. Um, We were introduced to a community of people, of adults who took us under their wing and allowed us to just be. And allowed us to experiment with our gifts and skills. And if we said we wanted to help with the administrative aspect, then they put us to work on the administrative aspect. And we said we wanted to be in the classroom, then they would put us as a teacher's aide. And now we were in the, as a catechist. Sorry, now we were a catechist aid. And as our as my desire grew to want to become a catechist, I remember I went up to my DRE and I said, "I know that you have to be 18. I will be 18 in July, but right now I am um oh, 17 and a half." And if I pull together a group of people to take the formation course, will you offer it here so that I can become a certified catechist? She looked at me and she's like, sure. And so a couple of us um, under the age of 18, we rallied together and we got a formation center at our parish. And so before I was 18, I was certified as a catechist, obviously getting a commission till after I was 18. But in my mind, I was certified because I went through the course. Um, But it was because of people who were at the parish, who saw something in me, who believed in the gifts that God had given me. And they said, run with them. And they opened up opportunities for me to, to tap into that I would have never tapped into had they not said yes. So
0: that's that's like a DRE or a youth minister's dream, right? Is for a young person to come up to them and be like, hey, um, I want to get certified. I want to do this professionally, right? Like I think back in, in my career, the students who come up to me and they're like, all right, Chris, I, I'm thinking about doing youth ministry as a career, what do I need to to do to make that happen? And, um, and and what's interesting too, actually, let's pause there. Let's go back to your mom dropping you and your sister off at the at the church office. Was this a pre like planned conversation she had with uh, the parish staff, or were, were they just as flabbergasted to be like, "Oh my gosh, we got teenagers here. What do we do with them now?" That-
1: this was preset, predetermined. She had already had a conversation. She had set the date, the time. This was planned. There was an expectation we were going to walk into that office at that time.
0: So, so all right. So the plan was put in place. Um, tell me about that parish dynamic. You keep talking about the men and women who are part of it and everything. What were some of the key qualities or characteristics that really stuck out that uh, have laid, um, you know, an impression on you uh, to this day?
1: This is my. This is was my home parish. So I was baptized. All my sacraments were celebrated at that parish. Um, because I grew up in that parish, I went to school in that parish, I got to know the community in a, in a very different light. Um, a lot of relationships were formed. They got to know me, they got to know my family, and so they they would know us, and conversations would flow that, that I think were organic, but also intentional because of the relationships we were forming, and so I think what stands out for me from this parish community are those relationships that were formed, I think that DRE who believed in me, who said, "Great, go form the formation center if you're able to pull the people together." I mean, I had the courage because we knew each other. She knew me, and we had a relationship, so it was a lot easier, and there was a comfortness for me to approach her and say, "Are you open and willing to do so?" Um, and just different different things that transformed that transpired over the years at that parish was all based on relationship for me, a sense of trust, and believing that if somebody has an idea. And they've proven to some capacity to be able to follow through. Let's take the risk along with them. And I saw that happen multiple times.
0: So is trust something that is easy to earn with you? Or is that something that takes time? Like, are you like for me, I'm, I'm, I'm first to trust. I'll trust you until you break my trust. Where are there other people where it's like, you got to earn my trust along the way. Like, where do you fall on that spectrum?
1: I don't believe you have to earn my trust i think mm-hmm. i fall along lines with you I, I always see the goodness of individuals until it's seen in a different light and so mm-hmm. i will always approach someone with i have seen no no intention to go in any different direction and so the trust is there until it's broken um at least that's from my perspective and even then when it's broken i always believe in second chances and, and trying to to fix it right. <laughs> and to mend it um but yes trust if you were to ask me what are one of the values that, are, that you highly um, hold dear to your heart, trust is one for me.
0: Okay, awesome. So you wanted to be this catechist by the age, before 18, age 18, you want to be a certified catechist. Did that launch you into um, at post-high school, into a career of ministry? Was that what was on the forefront of your mind? Or what were, what were plans for 18-year-old Christina going into to college and so forth?
1: So my plans were always to be in ministry in some capacity, but on a volunteer basis. I loved what I was doing at the parish. Um, there was something that was burning in my heart, a desire to always continue to be a part of that community and to give back. But that's not where I saw the career heading. And so when I graduated from high school, I was admitted to the University of Southern California. Um, and so that's where my dream was to go to USC. And so I did. Um, but even while I was at USC, um, earning my bachelor's end at that time. My I still was back at the parish and so I would go to school. I was commuting for some time and I would make it a point where I scheduled my classes around the catechism schedule, the catechist schedule. And so I was back at home at the parish volunteering on Thursday evenings or Saturday mornings. That was always a a priority, not a career. I was offered a position twice um, at the parish to take on leadership and I said no because again, I was at USC at that time getting my bachelor's in psychology and I thought I was going to be a family therapist or something around those lines. Um, And then I had a calling to go into social work. And so I continued at USC and I got my degree in social work. Again, becoming a professional youth minister uh, as a career was never in my horizon. Volunteering and being a part of that was always on the agenda. That was without a doubt where I was going to find myself giving up my time and service. Um, Things changed after a while and I got hired at the parish.
0: What, what do you, what was your, I mean, so yeah, you, you wanted to go on this career of psychology and family therapy and, and get your um, uh, you know, degree in social work and so forth. Um, like, like what were some of the reasons to turn down the ministry job? Like why at that point did psychology and social work, which I come from a family of uh, psychologists and social workers. So I know a little bit of that world, but like, what was the draw of that over youth ministry? Cause I know it wasn't money.
1: <laughs> well, actually the reason why I kept saying no to a job in ministry was because of the money.
0: Oh, okay. All right.
1: Yeah. The money wasn't there. I mean, I, I would look at our confirmation coordinating and minister and what he or she was at that point, he was earning and it just, it wasn't within, I guess, the grand vision that Christina had. At this point, God wasn't quite necessarily in this vision. It was Christina's vision, um, and it wasn't in that sphere. And so, therefore, earning $25,000, $30,000 in ministry wasn't where I was hoping to, to be at.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now,
1: that was early, <clears throat> that would have been in the late 90s, almost 2000s, and that's where my mind was it has since then changed.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what's sad, um, and this is a whole side note, is the fact that if you were offered in the 20s, low 30s, in the you know late 90s, and how so, so many youth ministers and parish workers are being offered that today, um, and that's a whole nother conversation for the same you know, thing, but go ahead.
1: I was just gonna share when I first, um, when I transitioned from this is what Christina wants to where God might be calling, and it mm-hmm. came back to ministry. And then I was offered the position of the youth ministry coordinator um, at the parish. Again, this is the parish where I grew up. People knew me, relationships they knew that what I would say I would deliver and that I would always give it my 200%. And I had a really good working relationship prior to being hired with a pastor. And so he looked at me and said, I know now you have your bachelor's, I know you have your master's, but I'm not willing to pay you what a master's level you would be earning. And so if you can take this job for 30,000, I'll offer it to you. And I said, okay. I said, is there room for negotiation uh, a year from now if I am able to prove credibility to you? And he's like, we can have a conversation. I never left that parish earning more than $5,000 of what I was initially offered. Wow. And so, so when you talk about some of the injustice in terms of pay that is still taking place even today, it, I mean, it stems from, many, many years of not recognizing the value of the profession. I mean, in ministry, it is a profession. And unfortunately we don't pay um, and recognize that with justice. Not always.
0: You, you know, it's interesting because a, um, a thought that occurred to me today, because it was a, a part of this uh, cohort um, with um, leader Treks, Doug Franklin, who I, I need to introduce you to. But um, uh, the question that popped up was do pastors um sometimes struggle to see the value of ministry especially like youth ministry because of the high turnover rate now granted the high turnover rate can sometimes be because of the lack of value in the position but it's part of the reason why we're not there is because i'm afraid if i'm a pastor or an administrator i'm afraid to invest in something that i know or i believe is only going to be temporary
1: I think that's part of the reason Um, going back to the example that I just gave you about myself, part of the reason why the pastor only offered me at that point uh, was a starting salary was that his experience with the previous youth ministers and it was, it was a quick turnaround. And so his fear was like, you've just said, I'm going to invest and then you're going to be gone a year from now. And so when he hired me, I said, I give you five years. I promise you I will be at this parish no matter what for five years, invest in me now and you will have me for five years. Like I said, I never made it past the five um, additional mark, but uh, I will say what I received from him beyond the, the financial um, means is value to me. His, his respect, credibility, his affirmation, and his willingness to to take a risk with me meant more to me than financially what he was offering me, although financially it would have helped to have a little bit more, but yeah. it, just, it wasn't it.
0: But that's the thing too, is it's a long-term mentality is more important than being there long-term physically. I always believe that. If you have a long-term mentality, it's, it's kind of like being kingdom-minded versus being just uh, self-focused, right? Is if I have a long-term mentality, which means I know that my role at this parish or in this job is temporary, it's a stewardship, then whether I'm there for two years or 20 years, that the person who will um, precede me, the person who will be there after me, will just pick up that baton without any flaws. But if I'm, you know, there long term physically and not long term minded or kingdom minded, then it's going to be like starting over for the next person. They're going to have to blow up and, and rebuild, you know, whatever um, was 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 left there in, in place. And so I think that's key: is not to so much. Have, like what you said to your pastor, like, give me five years. And, you know, granted, that was a tangible time slot. But the mentality is what I've heard was more long term than five years. And, and, and that's okay. where trust was built and and opportunity. And, and as you said, blessings occurred.
1: Absolutely. I mean, my mentality has always been to help develop a structure that's long standing. And so whatever position that i've ever taken it's i look at the structure and say what can i contribute what what gifts do i have that can contribute to sustain the mission long term and so you start looking at the different structures that are in place what needs to be enhanced what needs to be modified what needs to be let go so then something else can be given birth and it may not be under my leadership my my leadership at the times of position that i've had maybe is just to to stabilize and to reformat and set the ground for someone else to come and then take it and run with it and I'm okay with that. My mind, again, is always on the mission. And how do you advance the greater mission? I'm simply a stepping stone into a much greater plan that, that's going to um, bypass me at some point.
0: So you went from this this parish ministry job. Uh, then where did you go next? What what was the next part of the journey? What what called you from that job to where, did, where were you called to next?
1: I was called because I did not apply. It originally, was to go to the diocese. Okay. Um, and so I was called by um, at that point was Sister It was the director, uh, Mike Norman, who I, I love and respect. He was he's been one of my mentors in, in ministry. Uh, he was the diocesan director in the arts diet, Los Angeles for many years prior to myself coming on board. But he called me downtown one day for a meeting. <clears throat> and in our meeting, he said, oh, by the way, sister, he wants to talk to you. Give a minute to go downstairs to see her. And so sure little did I know it was an informal interview offering me a job to come to the diocese and it was this conversation took place in January and I told Sister Edith I said I'm, I'm grateful that you're offering me this but I made a commitment to my pastor to be there for five years and my five-year mark is up in, in at the end of June that's when my contract would be renewed I said so until then unfortunately I, I can't accept the position and so she said, well, Christina, we'll take you part-time. I said, you'll take me part-time? Oh, yeah, we'll take you part-time. I said, well, I, I have to work full-time, but let me talk to my pastor. So I talked to my pastor, and I said, I made a commitment to you. I'm going to see my commitment all the way through. We're at a point in transition with, it's the, the, the ministry itself is in a good place. It can be transitioned. I can help you find another coordinator. To an extent, my, my gifts might even have been tapped at this point. I'd like to explore the possibility of working part-time at the diocese as I work full-time with you. And he looked at me and he said, if you think you can do it, you have my blessing. And so I did. For six months, I worked part-time in the diocese and full-time in the parish. And when May came around and June 1st hit and we had a conversation, I ended up leaving the parish and I went full-time to work in the diocese.
0: What gave you peace about (laughs) taking that diocesan position?
1: One is that somebody approached me. So I wasn't looking for this job. Um, I think over the last couple of years, I haven't necessarily been seeking, um, but it's been a way of, of conversations with folks that I felt that God has steered me in directions to have further conversations. So Mm -hmm. it was through a conversation with Sister Rita that she made this offer and I started thinking and praying about it. And I guess the peace came when I spoke to my pastor in which, he was seeing beyond what I was seeing and his courage and confidence in my abilities to say, well, if you think you can manage it, you have my blessing. I guess gave me the peace to say, okay, if Sister Edith is looking at me, my my pastor who I've worked with for the last four and a half years says I can move forward. Then let me try it.
0: Yeah. It's, it didn't seem like he was shocked by any yeah. means. It, yeah. it probably was expected, you know, at, at a certain point. And, um, so what was the role that you took on in the diocese? Like, uh, like...
1: So I came on board as the youth minister. I think it was at that point, the title was youth ministry consultant or consultant of youth ministry, something, a variation of that title. I was in that role for a year. And then um, during that time period, I, I got pregnant and um, I was expecting my first, my little girl. And sister Edith at that time said, Christina, there's going to be opening in the San Gabriel region, which for me at that point, meant my commute was reduced from an hour, hour and a half down to maybe 20 minute commute. Wow. Um, because I was going through a lot of personal changes and many, many factors. She said, you know, it, it might be something for you to consider, perhaps maybe a shift in going into the region. Um, so I said, well, let, let me think about it. and." prayed a lot and had more conversation with different folks and ultimately I accepted that. And so then I moved over as the San Gabriel Regional Coordinator, still within the office, so still working for the Archdiocese, but now I was working in a specific region. And as a Regional Coordinator, I would then work with all the consultants in the office, but I was primarily focused on one specific area. Now the Archdiocese of Los Angeles broken up into five regions. And so within one region, I there was about 60 plus parishes that I was now working with, with the youth ministers, with the cat, the DREs primarily, um, with the pastors, um, the different levels of ministry, and being able to be of support to them on behalf of the office that was downtown.
0: And what were some of your uh, primary um, responsibilities with supporting them? What did support look like?
1: Um, so support meant um, monthly gatherings. So I met with all the DREs in the area, uh, or the at some point we started now calling them um, catechetical leaders, and then we would call them. Um, Adult, I mean, the, the, the terminology changed, but I was primarily providing support on a monthly basis. Um, that would be networking, it would be for providing um, professional development, etc. Um, I was also responsible for ongoing formation in the diocese for the specific regions. So we're working in collaboration with the, 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 the auxiliary bishop who I was primarily in, con- in connections with and figuring out what that would look like and then working directly with the staff in the chancery. So adult faith formation opportunities, different specializations. So we get people trained and formed um, specifically with elementary or with adolescents or junior high, et cetera. And then the other bulk of my work was spent on a regional Congress. So I was responsible from the ground up to put together a formation um, event per se uh, experience in the region. From the exhibitors from the speakers from the theme i mean you name it and so that was also part of my responsibilities
0: so what was bringing you joy in that work right because um and maybe i'm answering this question right here but one thing that's always resonated with me is craig gould our diocesan director here in the archdiocese of baltimore who i know you know and uh he says at the um at the orientation for our new youth ministers that a, um, you know, a volunteer in youth ministry gets involved in youth ministry because he or she loves teens. A youth minister gets involved in youth ministry because he or she loves the families and loves the um, volunteers who love the teens. As a diocesan director, um, we get in because we love you guys. We love the youth workers, the youth ministers and the DREs who um, love the uh, parents and the volunteers who love the teens. what was bringing you joy in those positions? Because here you are now like in this diocesan role yet, you know, we go back to your teenage years as a catechist, like what, what was the passion that was fueling that? And, um, and going back to you know, bringing you peace, like there's affirmation and being called into it. People asking you to be in these positions, but obviously it's not like you, or maybe you did retracting and went back to parish ministry, um, right away. You, you kept on going down this like path that almost seems linear, which I'm sure it didn't feel like that at the time.
1: No, it didn't. Um, <laughs> but I think a, a constant connection. And I would say even to today that brings me joy, brings me peace that, um, that I guess, uh, um, continues to propel me to move forward. It, our relationships, our people. And so, They have shifted, they have um, looked different at the different roles that I've carried. When I was a youth minister, minister, I had a lot of relationships, personal relationships directly with young people and with their parents and families and other colleagues that I thought I would miss deeply when I moved into a diocesan role, which I did. And it took me a good solid two years to transition from what was in parish life to now my role as a diocesan director, um, working in a different capacity. But I continue to be fueled by and nurtured by those relationships. Now they were with the DREs. Now they were directly with other um, parish ministry leaders with um, local bishops that I was now with, interacting with. And at, even in the position that I'm now, I thought that I would miss a lot the work that I did directly with uh, in a diocesan level. It took me some time to get used to now the people that I'm working with are different, a different capacity and, and what fuels me are the relationships that I now have with diocesan directors with other national organizational leaders, um, with bishops um, in a very different capacity. But at the end of the day, it's those building of relationships. It's based on people. And if that's not at the core of what I'm doing, Christ-centered and working with people, then I I know I'm not thriving. I know the joy is not there for myself. I know that something is lacking. And so making sure that those relationships are nurtured and cared for is something that uh, I know that I need to be, be, be mindful of and pay close attention to.
0: Yeah, relationships are are so important especially in relational ministry um and uh and not just with the people that you're serving but the people that you're serving alongside of and um you know you're you're in a situation where um you're located in DC, right? And uh I mean one, you had to make the transition from the West Coast from California all the way over to DC. Um now, I want to get back to that in a second, but now you're in a situation where even though you have a team, a staff, they live all over the, the place. They live in different parts of the country. How do you maintain those relationships with your, with your um, employees, your coworkers, and everything, even though physically uh, you're not in the same place?
1: I think we're, I'm going to use this word blessed. I think we are as a team.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, we all live in different states. Uh, none of us are in the same proximity closeness that we can just drive to one another's home. We typically have to pick, we have to pick up the phone or, or have a conversation via Zoom or we use Teams with Microsoft to, to connect. But I think one of the things that we, we have as a team is this level of um, trust and transparency and honesty um, that is built within us. It, it did not happen overnight. It is um, developed over time. I know a lot of it has to stem from myself and how much I trust my team and allow some independence with that feeling that someone's micromanaging or looking over their shoulder. That's not how I operate. Um, But again, I think if I had to name maybe three qualities that um, allow us to work closely together, I would say one would be communication. Having a very open communication and that it's clear how we communicate. Um, Two would be trust with the open communication is developing and building that trust amongst us all. And then the third one I would say is um, managing each other's expectations. I think so many times we can easily assume that you send an email and you expect a response within the 24 hours or 48 hours and that might be my expectation, but that not that might be somebody else's expectation. So being able to have those open conversations and being able to establish those expectations early on. I think those are the three elements that help us thrive together as a team.
0: Let's talk about managing expectations as a leader. How do you set the pace for that or the tone for that for your team?
1: Well, I I'm an open book, and my team knows that. I have no, I keep telling them all the time. I have thick skin, and so therefore, if there is something that I'm doing that is not working, or you see it a different way, then bring it forth. I I don't presume or to say I have all the solutions. I think together we can come up with better solutions. So if something isn't working let me know. And so because of that, there, I can get an email, we can have a conversation with all of us. And they'll just say, you know, we need clarification on this expectation. Is this an expectation that we do X, Y, and Z? Do you expect us to do B, C, and D? Um, and that allows us to have a conversation to move us forward, to clarify whether it's my expectation or is an expectation for the entire group. Uh, I mean, that's more of an organic and informal, but we do have, so I might get some parameters of how we operate. And so having an employee handbook lays out some of those expectations, um, laying out some, some protocols of how we're going to operate as a team lays out some of those expectations. But again, at the end of the day, it's, I have it's again, please ask, we can clarify. it.
0: Well, that's good. That's good. That's a humility that leaders need to, to, to need to have. Right. Um, I, I wish I, I could say that I'm more of an open book, but there, or so many times where I've had to tell people you need to tell me or ask me three times before I'm okay with it. You know, because one, I have to get over my hurt two, I have to actually listen three. I need to process. And then I'm, I'm ready to like adopt that idea. And I'd like to say, hopefully as I've gotten older and more experienced that, um, humility has come along, um, much more at a higher level than it was when I was younger, but I'm not sure if, uh, some of the people, um, in my life, would agree with that, but I, but I'm I'm a work in progress, um, and, and then with communication, right? So um, you know, right now, I know what a lot of uh, people, not just youth ministers, but people are experiencing in quarantine, right? Is this accessibility, right? For even though we had the same technology uh, beforehand. Um, you know, there are youth ministers who I talk to who are like, Chris, what do I do when my pastor emails me at 10 p.m. at night? You know, do I need to respond to that? Should I be on my email late at night? And, you know, or, um, you know, uh, my before it was all about my hours in the office and now we're not physically in an office. So how do I let my my pastor know or my administrator know that I'm, I'm working and everything? So uh, what advice or what insight, you know, knowing that you're not seeing your employees and your coworkers point, you know, every single day of the week, what are some suggestions or tips that you would give, um, not just youth workers or DREs, but even um, pastors on how to make sure that the communication is flowing smoothly and and expectations are being managed and trust is being built?
1: I would say rule of thumb, operate with over-communication always being the best. Okay.
0: Over-communicate,
1: over-communicate, over-communicate. Even if you think you're not over-communicate, over-communicate. Um, the reason why I say that is because so many times um, one can imagine or can assume, oh, I'm, I'm working on this project. Therefore, he or she should know I'm working on this project. Well, they may not necessarily know that you're working on this project. So it's a simple email to let them know you're working on this project. But taking a step back to answer, I think, your, your question, I think it's important as an, as an individual that you know your rights and you know what you're entitled to. That's the first step to being able to manage expectations. Um, I am one to send emails late at night, and my team knows that. But I have also told them that there is no expectation that they are to respond to any email after the workday. Workday ends at 5 p.m. I email during the weekends. There is no expectation for them to answer an email over the weekend. Um, I would hope that they're not, that they're taking the time for themselves. Some of them do, um, but there is no expectation. But that's also because from from a leader's perspective, I know that what I'm I guess, legally responsible for is to ensuring a, a work schedule, a work day for my employees, which is from nine to five or whatever is set in the employee handbook, and for them to be aware of their rights. Now, if they decide to take emails and phone calls late in the evenings, and I've told them they don't have to, I leave that on. We're all adults. So you can make your own choice, but that you're not going to be fired for not responding an email at 10 p.m. at 10 p.m. or the next business day. That's not, not a business day. It's a weekend. So knowing your rights and knowing what you're entitled to, I think that's across the board. The other things that somebody once said, um, and I was, it made sense. He said, you know, you, you can't manage other people's expectations, but you can manage your own expectations and you can set your own boundaries. This is even before COVID. Emails will come in at all hours of the night. And if you're not responding to someone within 24 hours, you're getting an email saying, hey, by the way, I'm circling this around, or I sent you this email a week ago and I haven't heard from you, et cetera. The best bit of advice that I received from this one individual, and I was I was trying to manage all these emails coming through, and I just I and even now I cannot attend to all the emails within a 24-hour period. And he said, Christina, you, you can't manage their expectations, but you can draw boundaries for yourself. And so if you know that you cannot respond to that email, then don't respond. You'll get to it as soon as you can. And in your response to that email, as politely as you can to that person, you say, Thank you so much for your email. I was not able to respond to you for whatever reason, but here is a response for yourself. But you have to be comfortable with that and you have to set that boundary for yourself. If not, you're gonna drown in emails. And that's true. And so sometimes I look at in my inbox and I said, I, I know I need to respond, but I have a pressing issue that needs to be attended to. So I will get to that email when I get to it. And it's my, again, my own parameters that I'm setting forth and I cannot manage somebody else's expectations.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And it's clarifying, right? It's clarifying our limitations and everything. Um, You know, for me, and and I wish I, it's been a a bunch of different voices that, that's helped me with this, but um, it's clarifying to people like your capacity. Uh, For example, I'll get um, an email from someone being like, do you have an answer on this or have you looked at this document? And if I haven't, I'll say to them, no, not at this point, but if you give me till tomorrow, Mm -hmm. I I can respond to it. If you need the answer now, I'm going to give you a rushed answer. It's not going to be well-educated. It's just going to be a reaction. But if you want my best, this is what I can give you. Um, At the same time, uh, and that's been huge with family time, right? Is uh, making certain times or days non-negotiable. You know, a story I've shared a lot with people is early on in ministry, I had this one volunteer who would call me at 8 a.m. on a Saturday to ask me um, questions about you know, her small group, her, her girl's small group. It finally got to the point where my wife was like, the phone would ring, my wife would be like, oh, it must be Kathy, you know, uh, go ahead and get the phone. And finally I just said to Kathy, I was like, Kathy, I love the fact that you're enthusiastic about your your girls um, I, I love the fact that you feel like you can call me, but um, is there any way that you could maybe call me on Friday or um, maybe Sunday before this is happening? And she realized right then that she was coming into a, a time that I needed for rest. And and after that, it, it was great. And, and so... Um, you know, what I tell a lot of, uh, a lot of my clients or a lot of people that I talk to is you, you've got to set those expectations early. You've got, to, even in that job interview, right? When you're interviewing for a job, if a pastor wants you to work Saturdays and you're not willing to work Saturdays, then you need to say that. And if the job works out great, if not, then that's okay. Like you have to protect those boundaries. You have to create those expectations because then there's not that uneasiness or that break in trust that comes later. So that's good. All right. So I want to pivot and go back to your move across the coast or across the country from coast to coast. What was the biggest transition or what was the biggest change or challenge? That's the word challenge. What was the biggest challenge of um, making the change from your life in California to your life over here in in DC? Um, So, you know, that can... um, it can be personal, it can be professional. It can be, you know, you missed this about, you know, LA cuisine versus DC cuisine. Like what was the biggest adjustment or challenge that you faced moving cross country?
1: You know, it's, it's hard to answer with one specific, um, answer Chris, because there was many and multiple challenges. And I think we, I transitioned, I was, well, we, my, my daughter and I transitioned over three years and so mm-hmm. I, I can't say that I, I, there was one thing because every year there was another challenge that I was missing from LA that I didn't realize how much I missed. And so my, my first year moving, my first year once I moved was really focused on my daughter and helping her transition. That was my, I'm sorry, not the first year. It was, um, I'm sorry, NFCYM. My first year was mm-hmm. NFCYM. There was a lot of transitions with the organization. So it was really being present to the organization as much as I could. Um, and recognizing that my little one would adjust as be, and so would I, and we would we would survive survive as best as we could. And so the biggest challenge that I faced in my first year was just it was a learning curve um, from what was what was I, I was my expectations coming in to the reality of what I was facing. And so that was my my biggest challenge in how to navigate that situation. The second year was really helping my daughter transition. So mm. after, I, I felt that. My reason why I had moved to the to the west east coast was because of the you know, employment and the calling, and that was not a better place. My focus and transitioned over to my daughter to make sure that she had the community that she needed to be able to thrive in. And so I I spent a lot of time working with her until the one day she someone asked her, "Where are you from?" And in my mind thinking, "Oh, how is she going to answer this?" And she said, "Oh, I'm from Maryland." I said, "All right, you're in good place. You're in a good place. I can move on from you now."
0: The awesome. third year
1: was me is I knew that I had given so much time to the organization, my daughter, I needed to focus on myself to be able to be in a good place health-wise, but also peace of mind that I could continue being an effective leader. And in that year, I realized that I so yearned for community. I missed my family tremendously. I missed those relationships, those friendships that I had built over years in LA that now had to, over the course of three years, were shifting and, and they looked different and how much of my time had to continue to be invested to maintain those relationships. Um, and then I realized I missed food. I missed going around the corner to get an In-N-Out burger. which We don't have on the East coast. Shake Shack doesn't do it. Um, I haven't found a burger like In-N-Out. I missed authentic Mexican food, the food that my mom makes. I have yet to find a restaurant out here that makes that type of Mexican food. I miss walking into a restaurant and having some mariachi. You You don't find that on the East Coast. So I mean, some practical things like that. Um, But that's how I would have explained my transition and my challenges over three years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, as someone who's not from Maryland originally and and we live in the same area, but like uh, uh, it's hard to break into the state. It's hard to break into this area because it's so, um, you know, everyone's lived here their whole life. and, And when you're transient, it can be a little bit of a challenge. And, And I like how you broke that down. The first year was for the organization, the second year for your daughter, the third year for yourself, Um, you know, with the organization, right. You you weren't just transitioning and making an adjustment for yourself, but NFCYM was going through a huge transition in in itself and, and uh, not just in leadership, but in culture and, and and just deciding the direction that they were going to go. When you were uh, accepting the position, when you decided, when you said yes to it, um, you know, I'm sure you had plans in mind, like an idea, even if you were gonna wait and kind of feel things out. um, Over that, going from that initial plan to where you are today, like what were some of the biggest things that you didn't expect that that happened? So basically like where are the biggest surprises that have happened in the last couple of years as you've made that transition from California diocesan director too over here uh, on the east coast and executive director of the NFCYM. I
1: am so smiling with your question because um, I think like all of us who would say yes to a job, um, some of us might, you might have a general understanding of the position based on the job description and based on the conversations, the questions that are asked during the interview and questions that you ask. So you have a general idea of what you're saying yes to. Now, keep in mind, I've been a member of the organization for many, many years. It dates back to when I was, um, we had what was called NACOMO. So I was part of Mm NACAMOL. And so I was intricately involved in very very different facets. So NFCYM wasn't new to me. Um, I was present for a lot of the membership meetings. And so the conversations, the passion that flowed through, the room, I had seen all that. So I had a general understanding of the organization. I had a general understanding of the position. But everything that I knew went out the door the moment i started the first i mean the first 30 days i ran i started running with the position and so all the conceptions that the conceptions are what i had put in my mind of how i was going to operate and and my understanding of just listening and having lots of conversations for the first year without making any major changes isn't that we're all told like don't change anything your first year you just listen and you move the flow i mean within the first 90 days my bookkeeper Left, which meant I didn't have anyone to run payroll, and then I had to run payroll within within the twenty four hours. I didn't know idea what to do. <laughs> so I mean, my the whole my whole world was flipped mm-hmm. upside down in terms of what I expected that I was going to be running um, for the organization. So there was a lot mm-hmm. of learning, there was a lot of thinking, um, and some decisions that needed to be made, some quicker than others. A lot of more conversation with folks, and so I, I smiled when you asked that question because. It did not look what I had anticipated it would look like my first year.
0: Well, you know, it's fine because, like, I, I had that same experience moving from my last ministry position to my current one. And it was something that I knew people had told me, right, like, you know, walk in, just be a sponge, absorb, like, be... Be, you know, almost like a tourist where you're just taking everything in and, and just learning and everything. And, but I like couldn't help myself from like trying to formulate some plans to formulate some strategies. I couldn't help myself even when I did think I was being, you know, just a, a student to still being taken aback, right. Um, by how much I didn't know, mm-hmm. um, and I often equate that to like a pruning right it's it's when God's about to ask you to grow which he's always asking us to grow but in a way like that like in a transition like that he's going to do so much pruning that it's going to exceed your expectations to the point where it creates that discomfort and that discomfort I think is so essential because it just reminds us of how dependent we have to be on God and how dependent we have to be on the Holy Spirit so you know, it, it, I don't think it matters how experienced you are. Um, you, you're going to be uh, knocked out of your comfort zone a little bit in, in making those transitions. I have yet to hear a story of someone just being like, oh, yeah, it was like just, you know, I didn't lose pace. In fact, uh kept step uh, the whole way through. Um, so the, 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 that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, You know, as, as the executive director, right, you you. you care for all these youth workers, all these diocesan directors out there and everything. And I know I've asked you this question before and I loved your answer the first time. Um, I'm not going to say what that was just to see if this one's different or the same. Uh-oh. Do, you, do you, do you know what the question is going to be? It's, it's my favorite have no idea. question. No. What do you feel like is the single biggest challenge that uh, the youth ministry world is facing today? The single that's biggest that's challenge. You
1: yeah. asked me this question and now I've got, I don't remember what I told you. So you're going to have to be the, the judge of whether I answered the same or my, my answer. Yeah, yeah, go
0: go ahead, go ahead.
1: So the biggest challenge that are facing, um, the youth, youth ministers are facing today.
0: Yeah, youth ministers are facing today, yeah.
1: Now let me ask you this, is this now pre-COVID or now in this pandemic that we're living? Because I think my answer might be a little different.
0: Well, I, I entertain not. me, you know, uh, tell me uh, what it would have been before, or, and how it's different today.
1: So the biggest challenge youth ministers are facing today. Okay. Yeah, I think
0: that's good. All right. So before COVID, like before quarantine happened and everything, what was the biggest, single biggest challenge you saw youth ministers facing?
1: Well, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it doesn't matter if it was pre-COVID or it's COVID. Okay. Um, during this pandemic, I think the biggest challenge that youth ministers are facing is. I'm going to take a leap here and say it's themselves. Um, okay. It's themselves in terms of managing their own expectations. Um, also, man, I'm, going to, I'm going to speak to myself because I still I am a youth minister and I will always be a youth minister. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The title that I carry. Um, but I think the biggest um, challenge that I would face as a youth minister is my own self. And either a, I'm not growing professionally, so therefore I'm stuck in a certain rut, or I'm not advocating for myself in terms of my rights with my pastor or whoever my supervisor might be, or C, I'm not um, working collaboratively with other, other youth ministers in, in, in a community in which new ideas might be born and flourished, which then it would enrich whatever ministry I am now spearheading um, on a local level. And so I, I think it's starting with yourself and, and knowing, I guess goes back to your very first question that we started this conversation is your self-awareness. Knowing who you are, where you're at, where your relationship with Christ is, because you can only give with what you have. And so if you're not strengthening what's within you, it's gonna be very hard for you then to move it beyond.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know so, how I answered
1: the first time. So
0: exact same answer. Exactly. Oh yeah. Yeah, consistent. And and I must have asked you that what, like almost two years ago, I guess. Or oh, yeah. Know, that. Yeah. So um So uh, no, and that's true. All right, here's the follow-up question though. Okay. Why do you think that is the biggest obstacle that youth ministers face? Why do you think um, uh, they themselves is the biggest obstacle to their success?
1: Again, I'm gonna use myself. I mean, I I remember back when I was 21, 22, 23 years old, it's starting off as a brand new. At that point, I was now a paid youth minister. you know, I, I would seek consultation and I would go to gatherings that the diocese would offer with other diocesan directors. But sometimes I'm like, I'm too busy. I can, I can manage on my own. I, I got the resources here. I can do it myself. And so there is this mentality of I don't necessarily need someone else. Over the years, as I have grown more in the field and I have developed more of myself as a professional, I, I can't tell you the value it is to have a thought partner what it is valued is to be able to pick up the phone and say, I'm struggling with this. Have you had a similar issue? Can we have a conversation? And when I have now recognized that value of seeing a community of, of knowing a little bit more myself, my, I would say for lack of better word, production or what it comes out of me is so much richer because it's 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 coming from a source of Knowing a little bit more about myself, knowing where I stand in my own faith, my own relationship with Christ, and knowing that I'm not alone—I have the source of, of, of a community. So I guess I guess the biggest hurdle is um, being able to take that step where you're not the savior, you're not the end all, you're not—it doesn't the the, it, the door did not stop with you. But in conversation with others, you're some, you're you're a much you're a better version of yourself knowing that you have others in your sphere. But, but
0: it, it's a no. It makes sense. It's almost like a dualistic pride issue, though, right? Because you're saying that um, one, you know, we fall into the trap of believing that we we can do it all, right? Savior complex, right? But then at the same time, we're also not taking enough time to invest in ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Or to allow ourselves to grow. So it is this kind of a double edged sword. Um, but there was something that you said, in, uh, you said thought partner, and I, I love that phrase, thought partner. Now is, um, and and you talked a little bit about this before um, with with people you talk to and and just being real and and open. Um, Do you have like specific thought partners in your life? Like, is it one person? Is it a couple of people? And how like does one become a thought partner?
1: So when I was hired, actually when I was interviewed, one of the questions that was asked of me during my interview, um, one of the inter- interviewees asked me, Christina, do you know who's on your high mountain? Who's on your high mountain? And it took me a while to understand what they were asked, what this person was asking of me. But in conversation, I, I understood. It's like who's on who's on that specific mountaintop when you're dealing with an issue, whatever it might be, that you can call them and he or she will there's no question asked. You don't even have to say, please don't repeat this. It's it's an automatic, these are these are your people that you can trust, and you can come to your confidence in whatever it might be, that they're not going to go beyond. Um, and I was able to name them. I said, yes, I do have people on my high mountain, um, and I do. And in my in my thought partner process, there are individuals that I, I know who I connect with when it comes to just spirituality with prayer. If I need prayer. I know that there are if there's people on my phone that I can just send a text message and say, I just I just need you to pray. No questions asked, nothing, and I know prayers are coming. Um, if I need someone that I need to vent with, that I just I just need to vent. I text and say, hey, do you have 10, 15 minutes? I need to vent. Oh, sure, call me at this time, and I vent. Um, if I need someone that I just I need to think through an issue, I need, I need to bounce ideas off. Text someone, hey, can I just bounce this idea? Sure. Some of them are not even ministry-related. These are just individuals that I've, relationships that I've built over the years. Again, as I mentioned early on trust is huge for me and so once there's this level of trust that we've built and we've continued to to build upon over the years that i can have a conversation it's and it's mutual um so yeah i i do have a a thought partner a many different thought partners i That's do awesome. have on my, on my mountain top.
0: it's your entourage in a way uh people yeah you go to um and no questions asked um well, we're, we're going to take a, a turn because these are a couple questions I ask all my guests. And I, I love to um, ask these questions because I think it can say a lot. But, um, you know, uh, what, what uh, usually people ask the question, what are you reading right now? Um, uh, if there is a book that you've gifted a lot um, in your life, or I guess that, that, that's the first question. Is there a book? or a resource that you've gifted or shared with people a lot? Um, And if so, what is that?
1: Yes, there is. And I'm looking around. um, I want to make sure I get the title correctly. Um, I think it's, I don't have it here in front of me. But there's two books that I I have gifted. One is, I think it's the Five Languages of Love.
0: Okay, five love languages, yeah. Five yeah. Thank
1: you, thank you. That's one that I've, um, I've gifted quite often, um, and I've now often gifted the one for children as well. Um, I Just, again, knowing how a person receives love and how a person gives love, I think, impacts, um, and it makes it more authentic, the relationship that you're developing with that individual. Um, and then the other one that I've, I've recently, I, I've read all her books, is uh, Renee Brown. Renee Brown? Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Dr. Renee. It's
1: called um, Braving the Wilderness, Mm-hmm. It's one of the ones that I, I've gifted a couple of times. Um, and I think I actually gifted my copy with all of my notes. So I'm, I'm hoping to uh, that back at some point.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if that person's listening, please return that copy, uh, to Christina uh, ASAP. No, I mean, I, I I'm a huge, uh, Brene Brown fan. And in fact, I, I love the fact she has a podcast now and, um, it's, mm-hmm. it's just been essential. Um, uh, so, all right, here, here, here's the next question. If you were to, um, You know, uh, on a billboard write a message um, and it's uh, not to sell a product or or anything like that, but to um, to get a message or a word out there. um, What would be on that billboard.
1: Any message,
0: any message, any message.
1: Oh, you got me on the spot give me a second i'm gonna think i'll on
0: that. edit out the the dead space you can you can take a minute okay. to
1: think. all right so what would that message be okay i got it go for it. it the message would be always believe that something wonderful is about to happen
0: I like that I like
1: that and, and i guess that if you were to ask me which to ask me but if you were to ask me why It's, I guess, a sense of living in hope and living, um, knowing that God is always present and your dreams are much bigger than what you think, um, that God's dreaming bigger than you're thinking. And so not limiting yourself to what you might think is possible, but allowing yourself and allowing God to dream bigger than you. And so always believing that something, something wonderful, something good is about to happen.
0: Awesome. Well, Christina, this this has been a pleasure and uh, thank you so much for just taking the time to. Uh, share your wisdom and uh your thoughts with us and and uh and just uh, uh this has just been a a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me, Chris. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you.
0: Awesome. We thank you for listening to this episode of the YM Transfer podcast. And if this is something you enjoyed, we encourage you to go to our iTunes page to leave a review and to know that you can subscribe at iTunes or anywhere else this podcast can be heard. And of course, you can go to MarathonYouthMinistry.com to hear past episodes. And lastly, we encourage you, of course, share this with your friends, your families, your coworker, anyone else you know who might benefit from this podcast. We would be eternally grateful. Thank you.